tonight is the third Saturday of Lent, um, and our text tonight is John 2, 13 through 22. You can see it on the screen. Please excuse the very cliche and cheesy title um, for the sermon. And also, I I found, you know, the, the cleansing of the temple is kind of a hard... Uh, scripture to find a very cool painting for, uh, or at least a very, a painting that makes uh, Jesus look very inviting in any way. Um, I picked one that actually made me giggle a little bit, uh, because if you, there's another slide where I zoom in a little bit, Harry. Uh, in this one, you can't even see Jesus's whip hardly at all, and it looks like he just has a cocked fist, fist but he does have a whip there. Um, and then also, I don't know if you could see on the far right but these two men are looking at one another very closely. Uh, like, no, thank you, Harry. Uh, and that just made me giggle a little bit, and that's the one I put up. So sometimes there's not much rhyme or reason. But uh, that's, the, that's the text we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, and you might ask yourself, why, why is this text coming up in, in Lent, uh, you know, on our road to the cross, our journey, Jesus' journey to the cross? Um, and that's something we're going to consider tonight. But a few years ago, uh, I was given uh, a really cool chance to go and travel overseas to uh, Ireland and England and to go explore uh, over the span of a couple weeks. And one piece of advice that you'll probably get, at least from me, but it's a common piece of advice if you go, you get the chance to go anywhere in Europe, actually, is every chance you get, stop and go into a cathedral. If you're passing a cathedral, at least check if it's even open and go inside. Often, more often than not, they, they are open and available for prayer. And so I followed this advice, and uh, whether it was just passing a church or making plans to go to a church, um, a really great thing to do is uh, even song is, is this nightly prayer. It's almost every night um, at a lot of these cathedrals, and you can go and actually participate and, and pray in there. But often, uh, it depends on on the cathedral and the popularity of it, but you can you can get in. Um, and so this is a picture of a couple of them. But I, I would just very highly encourage this. Um, and, it, and it's just really fascinating. Um, in general, I think we could all probably admit that the Europeans have us beat on church spaces, at least on average overall. Uh, and it's, it's really not even a contest at all. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things in them. Um, if you go to the next slide, this is one thing that I found is interesting. This is just an example. You'll see here, this is in St. Patrick's Cathedral in uh, Dublin, Ireland. And you'll see these flags, all these, these regional flags that have been hung up that are completely wearing down. Uh, and when I went, this was uh, years ago, but I was kind of maybe towards the beginning of kind of my Anabaptist leaning and asking questions like, should we, should we have... Uh, civil uh, symbols in our places of worship, you know. Uh, I was asking those questions, and still am. Uh, you, you've heard Paul actually mention why we don't have uh, flags here uh, in, the, in the worship space. Uh, but I was curious, uh, just curious about this, and I asked the priest uh, that attended to this cathedral, um, just asked about the flags, and he said something really interesting. I just thought it was uh, worth sharing. He he said, yeah, you'll notice the flags um, in here are not tended to at all. Uh, they're wearing and they're fading away. Um, you can see in some of these pictures, I mean, they're, they're literally just string left uh, in complete blackness. They're wearing and they're fading away. And he said, 
he said, when we see these, we remember that countries come and go, uh, but that, and they'll fade away, but that the church never does. And I just thought that was really interesting. Um, so anyway, uh, when I was at St. Patrick's Cathedral was a good example of, of what I'm about to share. I was struck by the, the tourism inside of the cathedral. That one specifically uh, is very popular. There's even a, a gift shop in the back of it, and there's a gift shop in, in many of the more popular cathedrals around Europe. There's a gift shop in the back, and I couldn't fully decide if I was overall encouraged by this or discouraged. I was mostly discouraged, but I always try to put a positive spin. So I, I try to put a positive spin on it and think, well, at least it's kind of cool that, you know, uh, this in this country, or I'm sorry, in, in Europe, uh, this place that's largely post-Christian, at least these people aren't tearing down these, these buildings. They're coming and appreciating it, this very important part of their history. But of, of course, on the other, uh, much larger hand, I was disappointed um, because for a lot of these people, or so it seemed, uh, this was a part of their history, and it was just that. It was just history, uh, that this place of worship was just history. And so I was largely discouraged by this, this tourism and by these gift shops, um, because this building is meant to be a sacred space, uh, all these buildings. And for a lot of these people, it just seemed, or at least when you, you hear the, just, you see the crowd and you hear the the talk that's happening, it just seems like there's no spiritual significance whatsoever. This place where you're supposed to encounter God, I asked myself, I, I don't know if anyone's encountering God in here. They might be, uh, but, but I, that's what I was wondering. Um, and I wondered a little bit, you know, what Jesus would think uh, if he's sitting there next to me um, seeing a gift shop um, and, and seeing kind of this, this tourism. And I especially wondered um, what he would think about the gift shop uh, in the back. And I wondered this as I bought a really cool Celtic cross necklace uh, from the gift shop. Um, that's when I wondered it. But I did, in my defense, as I, as I ended the transaction, I said to the teen working at the register, uh, excuse me, can you stop making my father's house into a den of robbers? Um, and he didn't know what I was saying. Uh, but as I stood there and I was hearing all these languages from all over the world, from all these tourists, and of course, I'm one of those. I realize that, everyone. Uh, I'm one of these tourists speaking funny. As I sat there wondering this, um, I just wondered um, if this is, this is what God meant um, in Isaiah, uh, words we heard tonight, um, when he said to Isaiah, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. That couldn't possibly be uh, what he meant, right? Let's pray. And pray the words that we're familiar with. And if you noticed, we concluded our psalm tonight with, Lord, may the words of my mouth be ever pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so this phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. I might have butchered that for those of you who know Latin. Um, and by the way, the rest of the sermon is going to be in Latin. Uh, does anyone know um, what this means? Yeah, good job. So we heard semper means always. Nailed it. Um, what this means, and, and this is probably the cleaned up way to say it, but uh, what it means, uh, if you throw the slide up, it means a church reformed always reforming. 
again, that's the cleaned up way to, to say it, but that's, that's what it means. This phrase uh, is a phrase that was popularized by Swiss theologian Karl Barth. Um, and it's been championed uh, from a number of reformed denominations, um, largely by denominations that are really proud of their reformedness, um, if I can use that made up word. Um, but at its most basic point, uh, it's actually saying that the work of the church is never complete, that the, the work of the church is never complete, at least not uh, in its current state. Um, there's more church to be had, both in the work of the church and even just, if you think linearly, the, in the people. There's more church, there's more church out there, more church to be had. Uh, church reformed, always reforming. And if you can, don't uh, think about the historical reformation when you read this. Uh, the reformation, what we call the reformation, which really should be called the reformations, because there was more than one. Uh, it wasn't only Martin Luther, but uh, try, try not to even think of the historical reformation, even though that's what we think of when we hear this word, reformation and reform. And also, I'd encourage you not to think of this phrase as meaning the church always should change to its culture. This can be true, but on one hand, the church is always going to be affected by its culture and somewhat change and should in some ways. But also, on the other hand, the church is the church and it always looks like Christ. And actually, that is a good way to think of the word reform literally reforming, true reformation actually looks like a call to come back to Christ, a call for the church to reform back to what she is supposed to look like, back to Jesus. Karl Barth is an exemplar of this very thing. He called the church back to herself when the ideologies of, of Nazi Germany were, were tugging at her. He, he called the church back to its true identity uh, to look like Christ. And of course, we should do this today in both big and small ways, global and, and local ways. We should always think of how we should call the church, i.e. Our, ourselves, uh, back into uh, Christiformity, looking like Christ. Uh, in the words of the honorable uh, Ice Cube, we must check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. I, I would submit to you that this same pattern of, of reforming the church, always reforming, is exactly what we see in Scripture. Uh, we see this in Israel, in the Old Testament especially. The people of Israel are constantly being pulled back, right, into their, to their creator. Uh, and then we see this especially in the role of the prophets. This is almost the definition of the role of the prophets. The prophets... Virtually all of them are using often quite extreme or even bleak imagery uh, to point at how terribly off-path Israel has become, God's people have become. And they all call them back to Yahweh. And in addition to the prophets, God also gives Israel the, the, necess the necessary focal point to return to. So there's prophets always constantly um, reforming, if you will, um, Israel and calling them back to their creator, but their creator, Yahweh, also gives them something tangible to come back to. And for them, it was, it begins with the law. 
uh, God gave them the law, and we heard this tonight, the Ten Commandments. Uh, this foundation of God's law uh, is something that they come back to often. And the law, of course, includes much in it. Uh, it, it includes worship practices and obviously life practices. It in, includes sacrifice ordinances, and, and it includes outlines for, for temple practice, which leads to another thing that God gives Israel as a thing to come back to. He gives them first the tabernacle and eventually the temple, and then another temple uh, when it's destroyed. Uh, and then, then the temple becomes something, uh, a very important center of Israel's identity that it, it gets called back to, and they mess up a lot with the temple. Uh, but it's constantly being reformed. And if you just read through the Old Testament, that's a theme. Uh, you're constantly seeing this. And so there are two things about the law and the temple that I, I just want us to consider real quick, as specifically as 21st century Christians, um, that we, I think we need before we enter the gospel reading tonight. And the first thing is just to remember that the law and the temple are massively important to Israel. I don't think we could possibly appreciate how important this is to their faith in God. Uh, we heard in our, our psalm uh, tonight uh, these words, the law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. The statutes of the Lord are just and rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear and gives light to the eyes. That's just a snippet of the psalm we heard. And this sounds like a lot of the psalms. Uh, every single, almost every Wednesday morning in morning prayer in the BCP, we're given Psalm 119 to read a chunk of some Psalm 119. As you know, it's the longest one. The whole thing, though is about this. It's about praising God for the law. And actually, even the part I just read, one little joke I always have in my mind when I read it is it kind of sounds like, I don't know if you ever in high school wrote a paper and you had a really, really, really good line that you found, but you didn't want to plagiarize it. And you just changed every word in the sentence to try to say the same thing that you just, that you just saw. That, that's what it seems like when he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure. And it, I, I love these psalms, though. And I don't even know, again, that we can appreciate with, with really what they're saying in these psalms. They're praising God for his law, this foundation of their faith. And then the second thing to remember with, with the law and, and the temple is that these things are good. They're good things. They're important to God. I don't think that this should need to be said, but historically, Christians have a real tendency to think that God is completely against these things uh, somehow, especially when we get to the New Testament, especially when we get to our reading tonight. We have a tendency to think, oh, God is all of a sudden very against uh, the law um, or, or temple practice. Um, and I, I think we need to remember before we enter into this reading that, that these things are really good. I think, actually, that's why uh, Exodus 20, the reading we got of the Ten Commandments. I think that's why we get that reminder uh, on this night when we're going to look at Jesus in the temple. We get a reminder that this, this stuff, it comes, it comes from God. That the law and the temple are, are given to Israel as a gift. The temple is, is a place of mediation between themselves and God. The law and the temple are themselves means 
by which the people of Israel can work out their faithfulness to God as well. Uh, Simeon and Anna come to mind uh, from Luke chapter 2, I believe. Uh, Simeon and Anna, when Jesus comes and he's presented at the temple, these two odd characters, and that's the only moment we get with them. Anna especially. Simeon is likely a, a priest, and he gets to be there and see the consolation of Israel, and we read his prayer often at Advent. But Anna, um, I love Anna. She is a widow who then dedicates the rest of, the, of her life to uh, maintaining the temple. She dedicates her life to the temple, and this is seen as a good thing in Scripture. Uh, she's actually, both of them, their, their faith, as seen in the temple, in temple practices, uh, their, their faith is rewarded because they both get to see the consolation of Israel in the flesh before the end of their life. So the temple, especially as we're going to look at the reading tonight, it is very important to the people of Israel, to their faith, and it's a very good thing, originally, at least. It's a good thing given um, from God. So we get to our gospel reading for tonight, uh, and we all know this story. We're going to read it, um, and like I said, we'll be in John's version from John chapter 2, uh, where Jesus comes to this temple that is in need of reformation or reformation. Uh, and Bible scholars have a real heyday of trying to determine uh, when this happened, because the synoptic gospels all agree that this temple incident, by the way, it's in all four gospels, but the synoptics agree that this is at the end of Jesus' life, um, which is one reason might come up here in Lent. Um, and it may be even be seen as uh, the last nail in the coffin, so to speak, of a really serious thing that Jesus does in the words he speaks. Uh, but John, the odd man out, always, uh, in his gospel, this is at the very beginning, John chapter 2. This immediately follows, actually, his first miracle uh, at the wedding of Cana. So... We have that to, uh, to think about. Um, something John just has at the beginning to highlight something for the rest of John's gospel. Um, and we don't have time to look at what that something is, but it, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and some even think that he did it more than once, maybe. Um, and there's all kinds of fun stuff you can get into looking at this. But uh, in John chapter 2, Jesus comes to a temple uh, that needs reformation. Uh, let's read. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. And his, his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So this passage is often brought up. I, when I think of this passage, I've heard it brought up a lot just as a simple kind of proof text that, well, Jesus got angry. And there's that, but there's probably more going on. There is more going on. Um, and we also bring up this passage often to condemn such marketplace behavior within the church today. And this is, is probably true as well, but I still think that there's more uh, here. As you look at the context of first century uh, temple practice, the things that are happening here aren't as odd as we might think. In fact, some of what's happening here is probably some type of, of reform 
in order to make the temple practice possible in first century, uh, in the first century context. It was likely their attempt at shaping the new economy to fit the old temple practices, such as uh, the exchanging of Roman coins. The exchanging of Roman coins, which we, well, of the coin, the coin changers we read of, the money changers, uh, Roman coins bared uh, Caesar's image, and they're changing these coins into Hebrew shekels. That's a good, seems like a good thing. Um, it seems like a, a helpful reform, if you will. But Jesus does not applaud this uh, at all. His reaction is certainly classified as zeal, as we heard, uh, which, by the way, comes from Psalm 69, the zeal for your house will consume me. But zeal for what? What is, Jesus is zealous for the temple, but, but what is he upset with here? It certainly has something to do with the fact that this sacred space has come to represent something other than devotion and prayer. While John's gospel gives us something uh, no other gospel does, which we'll get to uh, on, on this account, I want us to look at Mark's gospel. Mark's gives us something really cool as well. And if you have your Bibles, I won't have it on the screen, but Mark 11 uh, is, is the passage where uh, Jesus is clearing the temple, and it's much closer to the end. And Mark gives us uh, a, a literary device in Scripture called an intercalation. And the much more fun phrase for it is, uh, that I've heard Paul say, is a Markin sandwich. Uh, you might have heard him talk about Mark sandwiches, Markin sandwiches, which oddly sounds delicious. Uh, a Markin sandwich is, and it happens a lot in Mark, I think at least nine times uh, it happens, where this device where there's a story and it's broken up and there's another story put in the middle, in between, like a story broken up, not finished, and there's a story put in between them. And the way they work is the story in between informs the story on either end and vice versa. The story that's sandwiching this other story informs the, the one within it. It's really, really cool. Sometimes it's more obvious how they're speaking to one another and sometimes it's not as obvious. Um, Mark 11, I would classify as, as not obvious. Uh, but I really love this Mark and sandwich. Um, the, the thing that's sandwiching Jesus cleansing the temple in Mark 11 is this odd encounter Jesus has with a fig tree. You might remember it, Jesus, when he curses a fig tree. And I've always found this little story incredibly interesting. If you don't believe me, I, I find it so interesting that it is about half of the reason behind a tattoo that I have, uh, this, this withered tree. Uh, just to remind you, Jesus uh, is, is walking down the street, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, when he comes across this fig tree that is, uh, has, is leaves, it, it's leaved, is that a word? Uh, it, it has leaves, but it has no fruit. He walks up to it for a fig, it doesn't have fruit. Also, it is not the season for fruit, makes a point to say that. And Jesus still goes up to it for fruit and there's no fruit and he curses it. Fun fact, I, I believe it's the only curse Jesus utters, a true curse that Jesus says at this fig tree. And then that's it. And then they go into Jerusalem, we get the cleansing of the temple. And then on the way out the next day, uh, I think it's Peter, uh, sees it and goes, uh, Jesus, that fig tree you cursed is, is dead now. It's withered. And, and then he goes into this discourse on prayer. It's when he uh, talks about moving mountains. You can move mountains. And even uh, includes forgiveness in this, this little short discourse he gives. 
Just a very odd story all around, I think. Um, one way to, to unlock, uh, if you will, the, the meaning behind the fig tree, and even some of the meaning behind the cleansing of the temple, is to go to the very middle of the Markin sandwich, uh, the intercalation. Um, and what you'll see there is two lines that Jesus says in that account. He doesn't say these two lines in John's. Two lines that come from two prophets. He's quoting, it's, he, he's not being original uh, necessarily. He's quoting two prophets. These are the two lines he says. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, which is, it comes from Isaiah 56. And if you were to go and read all of Isaiah 56, you would see there this vision that Isaiah is given of God's covenant all of a sudden being extended to foreigners, to non-Jews. And then you get a, a, a line from Jeremiah, but you have made it into a den of robbers. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, which if you were to go and read the chapter, you would get a vision, Jeremiah's vision, of God's judgment on the nation's corrupted temple practices. So, when you look at these, when you, when you get these, uh, the context of these two, and, and for us it takes some serious homework, but it takes a lot less homework uh, for Jews listening to this. These lines are likely familiar. When you put these together, you get a really cool uh, image of, of what Jesus might be condemning here in the temple. He's condemning the corrupt temple practices and specifically pointing to the temple exclusivity as a huge symptom of their failure. The exclusivity that has been found in the temple. It has not become a house of prayer for all the nations. Here's a, a small diagram that you'll see. Uh, if, if you, There's a lot to see here. We won't go through all of it. But if you look on the outside, there's the court of the Gentiles. This is, this is Herod's temple, the second temple where this is happening with Jesus. The court of temples is where the Gentiles get cut off. They can't go any further. That's where they get stopped. And you'll see in the, the little uh, pink area, sorry, I'm, I'm having trouble seeing mine uh, as well. I don't know what to do. Um, in the little pink area is uh, the court of, uh, where women get stopped. Uh, women can't go any further than that. And then uh, in the yellow, the inner yellow, you get the court of the Israelites, which would be your... Uh, typical male Israelites, and then even further is for, for priests, uh, for the priests of, of Israel. And so this is just an image you can see in the current time, even when Jesus is there, it is uh, anything but a house of prayer for all the nations. It's quite exclusive. There's literally tiers uh, where you can go in and uh, only get so far. And so this temple has not been a house of prayer for all the nations. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus uh, just says this line um, from Isaiah um, or, the one, or the one from Jeremiah. The fig tree, uh, which is Israel, gives false pretense of, of leaves, but it has failed to bear fruit. And also in true prophetic fashion, Jesus is calling for a return, a reform. Uh, and he's doing this suggesting He's suggesting this with very bleak imagery, which is also uh, in very prophet-like form. Uh, the bleak imagery of a cleared temple, quite angry temple clearing, as well as a, a withered fig tree. 
But there's hope for the fig tree. I said it was a half of my inspiration behind a tattoo. The other half is obvious if you know me well. Because the fig tree, like the tree of Gondor, will bloom again. It will bear fruit again. It will, it will be alive again. There's hope also for the temple. And there's hope for Israel in this whole story. And we find this hope in John's gospel as he ends this story of the, the temple clearing. Uh, and we only get it from John. We only get this next part from John, none of the others. So John has the gift of hindsight, literally. Uh, he's the last gospel written. And in this case, uh, we're given a gift. So we finished our Mark and Sandwich, and boy was it good. Now we're uh, going to go back to John chapter 2. We get this exchange between Jesus and the temple authorities. It says, The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, uh, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the new thing that Jesus is doing. This is the hope uh, for the fig tree, for Israel, for the temple. Jesus refers to the temple now as his own body that will be destroyed and then raised. Jesus, in his cryptic way, is showing that his very body will now be the place of mediation between God and man. His body will quite literally become a place of worship itself. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Or one could say he did not come to abolish the temple, but to embody it. His body will now become the means to commune with God. He is asking his people to reform, or reform, but no longer around the temple, but around his, his very body, as we're doing this very moment. And his body will not fail, unlike the temple, his body will not fail to bring all nations to himself. This exchange between Jesus and the Jewish authorities can way better be summed up by uh, the Apostle Paul and what we heard tonight. For Jews demand signs. We heard them demand signs just a moment ago. And Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let me end by connecting all this to Lent a little bit more specifically. Jesus alludes uh, to the destruction of his body, the cross, in a very cryptic way. Uh, I love how it, the passage actually, it, it's really all being told in hindsight, especially there at the end. Um, Jesus doesn't sit there. It doesn't seem like Jesus sits there and explains it, connects all the dots in the moment. But, but later they see it. And this is one reason we think it happened at the end of his life, because the cross is right there, and he's, he's speaking about it. 
But uh, here at Wheatland, um, our focus for Lent has been God's love. Uh, and specifically, God's love, the framework uh, we've been using is Romans 5.8. For God shows his love for us in that, demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So on our way to the cross, as we journey with Christ to the cross, I'd ask you how, how he demonstrates it, his love, uh, in the clearing of the temple. There's a few answers to that, I'm sure, but for me, it reminds me that God's love is not passive. That agape love is not passive. And this seems obvious in our story of the clearing of the temple. Uh, it's not passive whatsoever. Uh, but you might look at the cross and you might think, well, that's, that's pretty passive. Uh, it seems like it. He even says at one point, I, you know, I could call down angels. But I'm not. It seems like a passive act. But I, I want us to consider um, all the things that gets Jesus on the cross for a second. Uh, Dorothy Sayers writes this, the people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left to succeeding generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium, a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. He was tender to the unfortunate, patient with, on, with honest inquirers, humble, but he also insulted clergymen. He referred to King Herod as that fox, went to parties in disreputable company, assaulted indignant tradesmen and threw them and their belongings out of the temple. Officialdom felt that the established order of things would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. Agape love is not passive. Nonviolent, yes, but not passive. Not only that, I, I really do want us to see the cross as not passive whatsoever as well. A lot of you probably know or have read Brennan Manning. This is a picture of Brennan Manning. Um, he's a, a, a priest. Um, who wrote many books, a uh, friend of Rich Mullins. A lot of people know he was in Rich Mullins' movie that was just made, and the same guy made a movie about Brendan Manning, if you're interested. Another fun fact about Brendan Manning, if you look him up on YouTube, uh, you want to hear some lectures from him. Some of the very, very first videos you'll see on there, you might recognize the background. It's Hilltop Urban Church. Uh, he came and did a retreat there, a weekend retreat uh, for uh, several churches that came. And... He didn't do it at any of the huge mega churches. He did it at Hilltop, which is very cool. But there's this story, I believe it's in uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, one of his books, or it might be in Abba's Child, my favorite of his. Um, he tells this story of his best friend, Ray. Um, he grew up with this friend named Ray Brennan. His first name was not actually Brennan Manning. I think it was Richard Manning. And he grew up with this friend named Ray, Bren uh, Ray Brennan, and... They did everything together. Uh, he says that they went to school together. They bought a car together as teenagers. They double dated and so forth. They even enlisted in the army together and went to boot camp together and on, fought in the front lines together in the Korean War. As Manning tells the story, one night while they were sitting in a fox hill, foxhole, uh, Brennan was, was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while 
Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. And suddenly, as they're sitting there laughing, enjoying the night, a live grenade uh, gets thrown into the foxhole. And as Manning tells the story, he says that Ray, just without a thought, looked at him and smiled and jumped on the live grenade. And the grenade went off and uh, it killed Ray, but saved Manning's life. And later, when Manning became a priest, he was instructed to choose uh, a saint's name for, for his first name. He, of course, first he thought of his friend Ray Brennan and took on the name Brennan, uh, which is uh, Saint uh, Brennan, uh, the Voyager. Uh, it is a saint, but he's also paying homage to his friend Ray Brennan. So that's how he got the name Brennan. Years later from that, as Ray's mother... Uh, in Brooklyn was, was closer to the end of her life, Manning went to visit her, and they were on the couch one night uh, late having tea, and Brennan asked an insecure question that I think any of us could ask. In their conversation, they're talking about Ray, and he asks her, do you think Ray really loved me? He's doubting this friendship that he had with Ray, and he asks, do you think Ray really loved me? Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch, and she shook her finger at, at Manning and said, What more could he have done for you? What more could he possibly have done for you? Brennan said that uh, at that moment he experienced an epiphany, and he imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, Does God really love me? Does God really love me? And he imagines Jesus' mother, Mary, pointing at the cross, saying, what more could he have done for you? God's love is not passive, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Oh God, whose will it is always to be with your people, and to make ways to do so. Form us, your church, around the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that you may drive far from our hearts all wrong desires and help us also demonstrate your love to our neighbor. Amen. We're going to pray uh, the prayer of repentance, as we always do as we prepare for 